as a person who does podcast coaching and publishing a podcast and doing show notes, all that stuff, I get questions all the time. And one of those questions that I seem to get over and over and over is about the legalities of using music in different podcasts. And that's just one of the legal questions that we need to be concerned about. So in this episode of Podcastification, I'm going to be talking with Gordon Firemark. He's an entertainment law attorney, and he's got some answers for us. It's on this episode. We'll be right to it. Well, welcome to Podcastification. This is a show where we talk all about podcasting, how to do it, how not to do it, little tips and news items, things like that. And today we're talking with Gordon Firemark. Gordon, how you doing? Kerry, hi, I'm great. How about, how about you? I am doing really well. We had a little Good. bit of technical difficulties, which is funny because Gordon and I both are kind of tech heads and neither of us can figure this out. So Gordon Just finally when you get got cocky a, and complacent, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Gordon finally got a solution that's working. So Gordon, in entertainment attorney. Am I saying that right? Is that even what you call yourself? Yeah, I say I'm an entertainment lawyer, but you know, same difference, lawyer, attorney. And okay. uh, uh, yeah, I, I work in the fields of theater, film, uh, television, and new media, including podcasting and other digital stuff. So Yeah. So why in the world did you get interested in this kind of stuff? <laughs> I My first interest was in live theater. As a kid, I got involved very young, actually, in the technical side of theater. And I became a sound engineer, sound technician doing, you know, live shows, not Broadway, but the Broadway kinds of shows all over the country here in L.A. where I live. Um, and in college, I was a radio, TV and film major. So, you know, I, I view this digital stuff, the podcasting in particular, as just an evolution and frankly, probably the wave of the future for the way that kind of programming gets delivered. And it's a leveling of the playing field. So it's really exciting for me to be able to help folks do, you know, help the up and comers do things right, do things the way the pros have been doing it and protect themselves and others as well. Well, I love that there's people like you available to answer all of our newbie and novice questions because there are thousands of them when it comes to publication of things and having guests on your show and yeah. all kinds of rights issues. So, I mean, let's just start off with that first one that I introduced at the beginning of the show. People ask me all the time, about things like fair use, and, and we may need you to define what that really means, but regarding music, regarding other people's recordings, those kinds of things, talk to me for a minute about what is okay, what is not okay, and what are the absolutely don't do these kinds of things. <laughs> well, first of all, the foundational concept that we have to talk about for most of this stuff is the law of copyright. And the way copyright works is that basically if you if you create something original, if you if you come up and with a, an original story or a screenplay or, or a piece of music, you write a song or record something, you are going to own a copyright from the moment that work is uh, recorded or fixed in some tangible form. And so when a songwriter sits down and writes a song, he or she owns that song, the copyright in that song. And that means the exclusive right to make copies and distribute them and perform the work in public and those kinds of things. And also to make other works based on, or that incorporate that thing because it necessarily involves making a copy. So when you use a piece of music in your podcast episode or any kind of media production, you are making a copy of somebody else's thing. And in the case of pop songs, we're actually dealing with two separate copyrights. The first is the song written by the songwriter, the musical composition. And the second one is the recording that embodies that musical composition. And to gum up the works and make it even more complicated is that they're probably not owned by the same people. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so you have the artist and then you have maybe their publisher or their distribution company or something like that that owns the actual recording itself. Well, yes and no. So the record company will own the recording, 
but just as often as the singer who's performing the song on the record, just as often as they are the songwriter, they may be recording songs written by other people. You know, if, uh, you know, the hot band of today decides to go out and record a remix or re reversion, a new version of the Beatles yesterday, well, you know, McCartney and Lennon <laughs> wrote that song. So yeah, you're dealing with different parties. The music publishers generally control the songwriting side of it, the composition and the record companies generally control the recordings. The one exception here is if you're dealing with a, a new unsigned band, they probably still control all of it themselves. But it's worth asking these questions and making sure you know what you're dealing with. And so, just to cut to the chase, if they say, okay, I want to use this song from Switchfoot or Big Head Todd and the Monsters or whoever as the intro music to my podcast, the answer is you have to have permission. Yes. And it may be from one or two or three different people. That's correct. And the permission that you need may vary depending on what kind of use it is. You know, so if there's several licenses you need, one is the the right to actually incorporate it into your recording, which is what we would call a master use license and a synchronization license in, in the television business, sort of variations on this. But then also if it's going to be streaming, that's a different right than the download right. Uh, and there are different entities that actually administer the royalties for those kinds of things. And I mention royalties because that's, let's face it, this is the business the music industry is in, is collecting money for the uses of music. So if you want to use that song as part of your podcast, you should probably expect to be paying something every single time you use it. And that's every episode. So um, you may get a sweet deal and make it $100 a year or something like that, but be prepared. They're expecting to get paid. Well, I would imagine that the average hobbyist or startup podcaster is not going to have the deep pockets to be able to pay that sort of stuff. So the best advice is? The best advice in these situations is either use a piece of what we call royalty-free music. That is music that you've purchased from a, a library or a catalog that specializes in allowing these kinds of uses. And you have to be careful because if you just Google royalty-free music, you're going to find a bunch of places that are royalty free in the sense that you pay once and you can use it once. But if you're using it every week, you're probably going to have to pay every week anyway. So there are a few services out there that specialize in podcast safe music, some for free and some for relatively modest license fees. Uh, yeah, I'm actually going to be moderating a panel about this. This is early February now in 2018. Uh, next week, February, I want to say it's the 9th, is the, is the panel on using music in podcasting at PodFest Expo in Orlando. That's going to be a great event. I wish I could go. I had plans to go and some things came up, but say hi to everybody for me, Gordon. It'll be a lot of fun for you, I'm sure. Now, people who are listening, if you're curious about the kind of resources that Gordon mentioned, the royalty-free and then the pod safe music, I do have some lists of resources that I'll include in the show notes for this episode. So you can swipe to the description on your podcast playing app and find all those links right there. I'll include those as well. So that's the issue of music. What is the reality of hiring a composer to create something for you? And then what kind of paperwork do you need from that person to say, yes, I give you the rights to use this exclusively or something of that nature? 
great that you brought that up because that is the other alternative essentially I, I, you know you can license the music directly from the owners you can you know use this royalty for your stuff or you can hire somebody or, or compose it yourself i suppose whoever it is that composes the music needs to sign a document that gives the podcaster the right to use it in the ways that the podcaster intends and that that might be as simple as a transfer of ownership of the copyright uh, although the composer may not be excited about giving it up for all purposes or it may be a license, which is a you know relatively short document that says, here are the things you're allowed to do with this music, and here's my permission. And usually it lays out a dollar amount of something, but it could be small. Or you can actually hire them under a, a, what's called a work-made-for-hire structure. When you hire a composer to create work specifically commissioned for your project, then the hiring party owns that work from the moment it's created. So, you know, if an employee creates something, the employer owns it. And when an independent contractor creates it, if there is one of these work made for hire agreements, then the hiring party would control the work. That makes total sense. Now, we've kind of beat this horse to death, or have we? Are there things about this that we haven't actually talked about that podcasters need to be made aware of? Well, you know, you brought up a really interesting point about fair use, and, and I want to touch on that a little bit and also yeah, explain please. that there are a lot of misconceptions about this. In fact, I was just dealing with this uh, a few days ago. Somebody contacted me and asked me basically these kinds of questions and said, well, you know, I actually record my podcast at a radio station, and it's a live radio show, and then we put it out as a podcast. And I had to point out to her that, look, radio operates under some different sets of rules. First of all, you can't download a radio show unless it's also been published as a podcast. So there's no download right. And radio pays for licenses through uh, outfits called ASCAP and BMI. These are what are called performing rights organizations. And they administer royalties for these public performances. So when you're on a radio station and they play a piece of music, the songwriters are getting paid for that use. They're not getting paid for the recordings. The, the record label doesn't have the right in the broadcast radio space. But as soon as you cross over into the digital space uh, with downloads and streaming and those kinds of things, you're getting into a new area and ASCAP and BMI only collect for certain kinds of uses there. And anyway, so the misconception is, is that if it's a radio show and they've got it covered, you're good for everything. Not true. Also, the radio guys will tell you, and they're wrong when they tell you this, but they often say, look, if you only use in 20 seconds of the song, you don't need any kind of license at all. And that's just, again, not true. They're basing that conclusion on an oversimplified understanding of this fair use doctrine. Fair use is basically a defense or an exception to the law of copyright infringement, which basically says, look, we in this country, the US, we believe in a First Amendment, freedom of speech and press and so on. And in order to protect that freedom, we are going to allow certain very limited uses of copyrighted material as a function of freedom, uh, free speech. And it's a f the, the courts have developed this principle. It's a four factor test that you have to go through on each individual instance, each individual alleged infringement and weigh out these four factors, how much was used, how substantial was that amount, what's the nature of the original work, what's the impact on the market for the original, and um, uh, I've forgotten what the fourth factor was now. <laughs> but anyway, it's this complicated four-factor test they have to go through, and no one factor is dispositive. So the fact that it's only 20 seconds of a four-minute long song may or may not be helpful in the fair use analysis. If it's the hook of the song or the most important 
substantial portion of the song that's going to be a factor the nature of the original look it's also a piece of music and there is a licensing market for music so those factors are going to go against fair use and so my advice to these situations is don't rely on this fair use defense because by the time you actually get to argue that it's fair use you're in court being sued for copyright infringement and you're paying lawyers tens of thousands of dollars to defend you you know (laughs) you're better off getting permission or not using the music I, I totally agree with that. There's no way that I would want to spend that kind of money just for the chance that I might be right to use this music. There are plenty of lawyers out there who are perfectly willing to let you buy them a boat for the privilege of, def- of defending them. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure so. I am sure so. Well, Gordon, that is very helpful. That is probably the most common question that I get about the use of music is that fair use thing. And so I'm so glad you brought that up. You know, we're going to take a real quick break here and I'm going to uh, have a little word from a sponsor here for a moment, but we're going to come back and Gordon, what I want to talk about when we return is the issue of having guests on your show and liability issues. And should you get some sort of a, a disclaimer from them that they don't hold you liable for anything you say? So we're going to come right back and talk about that as we continue here with this episode of Podcastification. We will be back with the rest of the episode in just a moment. I still remember what it was like being a brand new podcaster. All the questions, all the things you don't know how to do. Wouldn't it be great if somebody could answer your questions for you? Well, I'd like to be that somebody. Just go to podcastfasttrack.com slash questions and leave me your questions. I'll send you an answer via email and you might hear your melodious voice on the next episode of Podcastification. Let's get back to the episode. Okay, Gordon, we're back from that break. And one of the things that was advised to me when I first started podcasting, and I don't know who the person was who told me this, but the idea was that when you start recording with an individual for an interview, at the very beginning, it doesn't have to be aired on your show. Just ask them a series of questions about things like this. You realize you're being recorded for publication on the such and such podcast. Right. And they say yes. And so you you basically get a recording of their voice agreeing to whatever it is you're asking them to agree about. Is that overkill or is that a smart idea? I think it's a smart idea. And in fact, I will say it's not overkill. It's underkill for a couple of reasons. One is you got to know you're asking all the right questions and getting all the right answers. And when you do this sort of impromptu on the recording, as many of us do, you might overlook something. I would much rather see someone do something in writing or check the box on a web page or something like that to acknowledge that they've read this release that you're getting and that they're okay with all the terms. You know, good contracts make good business relationships, just like good fences make good neighbors. So having a properly prepared podcast guest release form is really useful because it protects you against a, the claim that they're somehow a co-owner of the copyright or B claims that you've somehow misused their name or likeness or the sound of their voice and their performance and those kinds of things. And, and it also gets you, uh, if you do it right, it helps you avoid claims that somehow they're, they're revoking or withdrawing their consent, which actually can happen if you don't have a, a carefully written. And fortunately for your listeners, there is a free resource on this. It's podcastrelease.com. I'm giving away a free release that I think is excellent for this. And you can use it as is or put it up on a website with a click box or something like that. And uh, the price for that is that your name will be added to a mailing list. You can always unsubscribe right after if you want. 
but you know, I'm going to add you to my database and, and keep in touch with you about these kinds of things. Well, that is very generous of you. I appreciate it. I was just going to ask you, what sort of questions should we be asking? And I assume all of that is part of what's in the release. But can you just give us an idea? What are the things that you're concerned about when you have a guest on your podcast? I actually have a case that illustrates the point almost perfectly in this situation. A podcast client of mine was doing a show that took a particular point of view uh, on an issue of child rearing. And she had an expert on her show in episode number five or six of her, of her series. Well, over the course of, you know, the next 50 or 60 or hundred episodes, whatever it was, the podcast sort of shifted its editorial perspective on things to a more maybe neutral and, and a little more open-minded point of view. And the expert who was very one-sided on this issue came back and said, Hey, I don't want my episode on your, on your feed anymore. Take it down. Ah, <laughs> Uh, and by the way, you're using my picture on your website and you're using my bio, which I wrote on your website and I own those things. So take those down too. So this podcaster said, well, look, I'm, you know, okay, fine. I'll take it down, but I want to post a, a message about why we took it down and explaining you being fair and your side of the view, your side of the argument. And this, this guest refused and filed a lawsuit, a 15, I think it was a $15 million lawsuit against the, the podcast. Oh my goodness. Now that was, you know, a ridiculous number for a number of reasons, but anyway, podcaster ended up having to defend herself in that lawsuit a little bit and ended up settling with the guest. All of that could have been avoided by signing a release, a one page document that said, I understand I'm appearing, I'm being recorded and you're going to use this for any and all purposes forever and ever and ever. And that I don't have any right to withdraw and you have the right to use my picture and you have the right to use my bio and you know, we're done. <laughs> I won't sue you. So that's really the value of having a release. Wow. That is crazy. And it's just making me think about, I mean, I had Gordon jump through some hoops to get on the podcast here. He had a form to fill out and a picture to provide and all that, but I didn't have any kind of release there, man. And I've been doing this for four and a half years. So Gordon, I appreciate that resource. Well, sure. And Carrie, let me just say right now, you have my permission to use this recording for any and all purposes in perpetuity without any right of mine to withdraw or revoke the permission. Oh my <laughs> so. goodness, Gordon. You sound just like an attorney. Uh, <laughs> Can't turn it off. Yeah. And that is the second time someone has used the word perpetuity on my show. It's like the education level is just going up all the time. That's <laughs> Forever amazing. and ever and ever. Yeah. So this actually brings us, if you don't mind me sort of taking us down another No, please. Tunnel. You know, the other area that this that having it in writing is important is when you're working with a co-host because again if two people get together and create something together the law presumes that they are co-owners of the the copyright and therefore any money that comes from it and so on so that's great if that's your intention as co-hosts but what about reimbursing each other for expenses what about yeah you know, what happens if there's money that comes in? What if, what if one of the co-hosts voices a commercial and gets paid separately for that? All kinds of things can happen. So having a, an agreement with anybody else involved in the production of your show is also very important too. If you work with a producer or a, a production assistant or a editor or a recording engineer, you know, it makes sense to have something in writing saying, look, you know, it's a work made for hire. I understand you own it. If that's the intention, or if the intention is to be partners, have a partnership agreement or co-production agreement. And the important thing is to be thinking about some of these issues a little bit so that you don't end up bitten on the butt when your co-host runs out of time, gets tired, fed up, annoyed with you, whatever, and says, I'm taking my ball and going home. You don't want to have to pull your feet apart to, to deal with that. Yeah. And something that comes to my mind as I think about this is that 
you know, sometimes I hear the objection. Well, it's my Uncle Joe that I'm podcasting with. I trust him. And I would say this is not an issue of trust. Mm -hmm. This is an issue of clarity because people's memories are foggy. People forget what they agreed to. People remember things differently than you do. And it's good just to have it in black and white so both parties can look at it objectively and say, this is what we signed. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be very complicated. It just needs to cover a few bases. And there are uh, ways to address these kinds of things in a friendly, you know, when you're starting out together, hey, let's get this thing on paper, you know, so we're legal. And um, frankly, it's better to have these conversations when everybody's still excited about the future than after somebody's pissed off about something. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. That makes total sense. Now, since I've got you on the line, let me ask you a related question. It's not exactly a podcasting question, but I've always been curious about this. You see these big name internet guru people who put together some course and they include all of these other internet gurus doing modules of the course. My assumption is they should have an agreement such as this with all those people, but I doubt that all of them do. Am I right in assuming that would be a smart thing to do? You are right. And it's funny you should mention that. I'm in the midst of creating a product <laughs> called the Digital Entrepreneur's Legal Survival Kit. <laughs> so wow. it's going to be exactly dealing with that issue and, and lots of issues like that to, uh, you know, sort of help people keep it legal and get it right. So they don't wind up, you know, with these same kinds of issues. Now there's a lot of implied contract stuff that can happen here. I mean, you don't hear about one guru getting sued by the other guru, you know, and they may have a, they probably do have something in email, uh, about how they're going to divide proceeds for things or they're doing each other favors or whatever it is. But again, better to get things in writing and have it down clear. And uh, again, once you sort of know how to go about it, doing it is pretty easy and having a lawyer do it is even better. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. And now you mentioned email is email a valid way of chronicling what you've agreed to in certain things uh, or is, I mean, will it stand up in court? I guess is what I'm curious about. You know, in many situations it is a valid form. There, there's a few situations where you actually have to have a piece of paper with an ink signature on it or, or an e-signature that you know can be handled electronically. But the general rule, you know, a contract is basically another word for an agreement or a deal and you can have an oral agreement as long as there's some way of proving what was the, agreement. What were the terms of this agreement? And so the emails become the evidence that helps clarify what was the intention. And sometimes it's as, as clear cut as one email makes an offer and the other email says, yeah, sure. That sounds great. Let's do it. And that's okay. Offer acceptance and it's done, you know, consideration. So yes, you can form a contract by email. Okay. And if someone gets your podcast release form and is therefore in your database, I assume you will announce through that email list about this new course that's coming out. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. Okay. So if you're curious about that, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it, Gordon, because I want to highlight the things that you're doing. That is just a great resource. So get on Gordon's list by getting that podcast release form. I'm going to have the link to that in the show notes as well. And let him update you on this stuff, because as far as I know, and I'm, I don't know everybody who's in the internet space, but Gordon is one of the best voices on these kinds of issues that I've heard so far. So I want to encourage you get on his mailing list and, and listen to what he has to say, because he has your best interests in mind in that sort of a way. Thank you for that. If you don't mind, let me just say, um, if you're specifically interested in that product, and yes, I'm going to let everybody know about it, but there is a waiting list to sign up for that particular product at toolkit.gordonfiremark.com. Okay. So Gordon, I know there are all kinds of other 
potential sticky wickets that you can get into when you're broadcasting things. Uh, Give us some of the biggies, the things that people make mistakes about the most. Another big one is talking trash about people. You know, if you are uh, speaking negatively about a person in a way that's going to hurt their reputation, you better be darn sure that every word out of your mouth is true, provably true, because if it's false, it's libel. And libel is a is one of the flavors of defamation law. And, you know, currently we have a president who talks a lot about opening up libel law. And it wouldn't surprise me to see that in the next few years we we do see some adjustments to how that works. Now, when you're talking about a public figure, it's a little harder for them to sue for libel and slander, but it is possible. And um, let's face it, if the person who's feeling hurt by what you've said has a deeper pocket than you, they can afford to pay lawyers and bring a lawsuit. It doesn't matter whether they win or lose. It matters that they sue you and it costs you an arm and a leg to defend yourself. So, um, you know, be be real careful when you're talking, especially uh, reputation damaging kinds of discussions about people be thoughtful about that you know there are there are cases in the in the media every week now about someone puts out a tweet and gets sued because they said someone was a drug addict when they should have said you know these allegations about their drug use you know those kinds of things yeah and um you know so understanding that uh, rights of privacy and the right of publicity you know if you're if you're endorsing a product you probably don't want to use someone else's name to to talk about endorsing that product you know because that's the use of a celebrity's name or, or maybe even not a celebrity's a person's name or likeness used for commercial purposes can be a, an infringement of what's called the right of publicity in some States, the right of privacy. If you again, telling, even if it's true information about a person, but it's secret information like their medical status or the fact that they use particular medicines or, or uh, how they, what kind of grades they got in school. You know, there are some classes of information. It's just private and we aren't allowed to disclose those publicly. Let me ask you a couple of scenarios based on what you just shared. Some people keyword stuff, the title of their podcast, and they'll do it in this way. They'll say podcastification interviews with people like Pat Flynn, Michael Hyatt, you know, and have all these names in there hoping to game the iTunes system and get people coming to their show because they're searching for those names. Is that similar to what you're describing here? It's exactly what I'm describing here, uh, at least one flavor of what I'm talking about. And I think you need to be careful about it. You know, the fact of it is, if Pat Flynn and Michael Hyatt have been on your show, it's fair to say so. But you've done that in the episode that they were on. Is it fair to also advertise episode 96 when they were on episode four? Probably not. And both Pat and Michael are nice guys. They're probably not going to do anything about it. Maybe write you a note saying, hey, come on, cut it out. (laughs) But not everybody is that nice about it. And there are people who feel they should be paid for when their name is used to sort of endorse or or support someone else's things. So it's a crapshoot. Even having to hire a lawyer just to advise you about the letter you got (laughs) is expensive. So Yeah, sure is. By the way, if you iTunes or Apple Podcasts, as they're known now, actually has rules and regulations about not doing that. So you can get booted out of their whole ecosystem for doing that kind of thing. But I still see it. You know, I see it in the directory quite often. So uh, we should just be aware of that. Now, let me ask you about another scenario. You were saying the whole defamation thing. I listened to a podcast not long ago where a pretty well-known product marketer had created an event, invited a big name person to come and speak at that event. According to his rendition on the podcast, he asked them to speak about something very specific. And when they came to the event, according to him, they didn't talk about that thing at all. They just told stories and jokes and didn't really add much value to his audience. And he was 
pretty miffed about it and was making it clear on his show and was saying he needs to be a man of his word, you know, this kind of stuff. Where does that fall in that whole defamation kind of a thing? You know, we lawyers are famous for this next expression. It depends. And it really does. It depends on exactly what the guy said about the person. Was it factual or was it more opinion kind of uh, information? And was it true or not? You know, certainly I, I, I take the guy at his word that he didn't get what he bargained for. But there's some argument that can be made about what they bargained for. And was there some, is there some evidence that the guest didn't deliver what he said he was going to deliver, what he was supposed to deliver? And frankly, that might be a, a contract kind of an issue, if, especially if there was money that changed hands or some other kind of quid pro quo, or you know, even if just travel expenses were covered, hey, I paid you to come here and do this, and you came and did that instead, give me my money back. That's a legal argument. But when you go talking about it and and smearing the guy's reputation, yeah, that could give rise to uh, to some of these kind of claims if there's a reason, a business case to be made for pursuing the claim. Okay, that, that makes sense to me. So are there any other big mistakes that you see podcasters making these days that we need to be advised about? I mean, there's lots of issues that come up. First of all, you know, not thinking about your podcast as a business even if it is really just a hobby, it, it, you know, you want to look at it from a business point of view a little bit. Are you monetizing? Are you selling ads? Are you doing affiliate ads or those kinds of things? There's, there are legal ramifications to all of these different concepts. Uh, the one big one that everybody needs to be aware of, and you probably have heard when you do an affiliate ad kind of a message, you do need to say, this is an affiliate relationship and I'm going to make a little money if you buy the product through my link and uh, be very transparent and candid about those kinds of things so that you're not violating the fair trade commission rules on endorsements and affiliates. Is it enough for a person to put in parentheses next to the link, the word affiliate and assume people know what that means, or should they define, I will get a little bit of money if you click this link? You know, I think the best practice is you know, to give more information than less. But one way you might do that is put, uh, you know, an affiliate indicator of some sort like you described, along with a link that they can click for more information, you know, or something like that. So you don't have to load down your show notes with a paragraph about what it is to be an affiliate next to every affiliate link. Uh, the way I've done it in the past is I'll have a, a short paragraph. Some of the links below are affiliate links. And when you click on them, I will receive compensation, but don't worry. It won't cost you anything more or something like that. And then if you've got a list of links, but it's important to do it in the body of the audio of the podcast. Also, it's not okay. You know, Cause the, the FTC takes the position that the affiliate disclosure needs to be, what they, I think they use the word adjacent to and prominently displayed or prominent and adjacent. So, you know, right there next to it. Hey, this is an affiliate link. I'll get paid, <laughs> you know, but uh, buy it through me. <laughs> okay. So that is interesting as well. It brings up another question. I hear podcasters quite often saying this episode is sponsored by Audible and they go on and talk all about Audible, but you know, it's just that they have an affiliate account with Audible. So is that improper to be calling it sponsored by? This is a little bit of a gray area. What the rules about false advertising and the rules about this FTC stuff is really about not misleading the audience. And I guess you could argue that it misleads them as to the nature of the relationship. But because you're suggesting that Audible paid a dollar amount in exchange for being mentioned on the show. And that's not the case. In practice, the substance of it is, hey, when you use Audible, we get paid. 
Um, and so we make money by mentioning this product here. So I'm not sure it really matters that much. If somebody really wanted to be technical and, and um, make noise about it, I suppose they could. I haven't heard of anybody making that kind of claim. And Audible probably stands to lose the most from that if they're worried about it. And they can tell you know their affiliates, you know, don't say sponsored by, say we have an affiliate relationship with, or some of our funding comes through an affiliate relationship with, you know, something like that. Oftentimes it's the brand that has to worry more about the consequences of these failures to, to disclose or these misleading statements. Uh, that's a fairly innocuous one, but I, I can see some sponsor messages that are implying a much more intricate relationship than really exists. Well, Gordon, I so appreciate all these insights you've given us. Tell us a little bit more about how people can find out about you and the things that you provide for podcasters. Okay. Well, first of all, my own podcast is entertainmentlawupdate.com. If you're interested in the geeky stuff about how entertainment law works, we do a monthly roundup of cases and news stories dealing with the field of entertainment law. It's me and a co-host, and she's a, an interesting music lawyer from Texas, and I'm in Los Angeles, and we, we love doing it. Our roundup once a month. You can find out all about me on my website at firemark.com. That's the law practice website. And all of my products and services are aggregated at gordonfiremark.com. Okay. Well, Gordon, thank you so much for your time today. It's been great to have you on the show. I am just excited about the things that you've offered. I mean, that podcast release itself is just gold. So thank you so much for your time and for being a part of the show. Oh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure, Gary. Oh, you're so welcome. Well, that's it for this episode of Podcastification. I want to encourage you, go to Gordon's website and get those things that he has uh, available for you. You can find that podcast release at podcastrelease.com. And I just downloaded it while Gordon was talking, muted my microphone and did the whole thing. And it looks like a great resource. So I'm excited that that's available. So that's it for this episode of Podcastification. You know what time it is. It's time for you to go and make it a podcastificating day. <laughs>